As we approach Christmas, uh, it's appropriate that we spend some time thinking about the reason for the season. And of course, that is for the coming of Jesus into the world. And it looks like the clicker is not working, Tim. So I'm not sure what's happening there. Okay. What I want to talk about this week is the need for a saviour. And next week, George Sears is going to speak about the timing of the Saviour's coming. Now, some of you uh, would be aware of... Thanks, Tim. Some of you would be aware of the great video clips that are available from the Bible Project. The Bible Project is a United States-based organisation which produces animated videos outlining the themes and arguments of biblical books, as well as various theological topics. And these videos all show how all of the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. They're brilliant. But there has been some criticism about the way that the Bible Project has presented the doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement is the teaching about how God has reconciled the world to himself. And I want to play you a portion of a video that they have made called Sacrifice and Atonement, which actually explains how they understand the atonement. I want to make some comments about it afterwards. So thanks, Tim. If you could play the video for us, that would be great. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. And therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. 
So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. And not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to his sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in this world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. Okay. Um, so what they producers in the video have actually said about the doctrine of the atonement, it's all about what the death of Jesus achieves, and they say that it has two purposes. One, to cover the debt that humans owe God or contributing to all of the evil and death in God's world. And the second thing that they talked about is that it provided purification for sin. So Jesus' blood is the symbol of his life having the ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in and around us so that we can now live at peace with God. Now these are both true statements and they do talk about two of the things that the death of Jesus achieved. But there is an aspect of the atonement, a very important aspect, I think, of the atonement that has been omitted. And this is the idea that the cross was also the place of propitiation. That is, the cross was a sacrifice that turned away the wrath of God against sinful humanity. That's what the word propitiation means. It means to appease the wrath of God. And the sacrifice of Jesus actually appeased the wrath of God. And that's a very important aspect of the atonement. And of course, as I'm sure you, many of you will already know, 
The whole reason Jesus came in the first place was to die on the cross for our sins. But let me back up a little bit and go back to the beginning of the story of Jesus. In my message today, I want to refer to a number of passages which help us to understand why the first Christmas was necessary. I'm going to put them up on the screen so you don't have to be chasing them up in your Bible, but if you want to follow them along in your Bibles, please feel free to do so. But I'm going to talk about why Jesus needed to come to earth at all, why he needed to come as a baby, and why we actually needed a saviour, because that is what Christmas is actually all about. When the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, he said this, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is a passage that we often read at Christmas time that reminds us that a saviour has been born. So the first thing that we need to do is to establish the need for a saviour. The world actually needs a saviour. Now that's not a given today for many people. Many people think that they don't have any real problems and don't need a saviour. What do I need a saviour for? I'm a good person. I do good things. I help other people. I obey the laws. I don't steal. I don't kill. What do I need a saviour for? I'm a good person. And often people don't see the problems in the world. But maybe that's because they are in fact a part of the problem. The video clip that I just showed you talked about evil being our constant tendency to wreak havoc and destruction. And the evil that we see all around us is the same evil that is inside of us. The Bible makes this patently clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's some verses from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, said this, there is no one who does not sin. And when he wrote some of his Proverbs, he said again, who can say that I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. King David one also spoke about the corruption in humanity. He says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And these are words from the Old Testament that the Apostle Paul picks up in his letter to the Romans. He says exactly these words from Psalm 14. And in fact, the first three chapters of the book of Romans are all about establishing that everybody is sinful and everybody needs a saviour. This is what Paul says when he begins writing about this topic in Romans chapter 1 from verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. But since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Sorry, I've jumped back a bit here. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity. No love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Pretty sobering words, aren't they, that Paul writes to the Romans. But they are just as relevant to us today as they were when Paul wrote them. And the point that Paul is making here is that human beings have willfully turned against the God who created them. And God is justifiably angry about their failure to recognise him as their creator, their failure to give thanks and their failure to glorify him. So God has left them to the consequences of their choice. But the ultimate consequence of that choice, according to the Bible, is death. At the end of his discussion of the sinfulness of humanity, Paul says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And a little later he says, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the penalty for rebellion against God. That's what the Bible teaches us. Now we might kind of go, oh, that seems a bit unfair. That's a bit sort of rough, isn't it? But the situation is this, friends. The one who created the world is the one who makes the rule. 
Okay, he's the God who created everything. He makes the rules about how the world is going to operate. I mean, if you think about, you know, even things in our own experience, if someone composes a song or a piece of music and then they expect it to be played in a certain way. It's got rules about how you are to play it or to sing it. And if someone says, oh, I don't care about that, I'm just going to sing it the way I want to, the composer is going to say, no, 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 that's not what I wrote. This is what I wrote. If someone writes a book or a story and you decide, oh, I don't really like that, I'm going to change it and it means something different, the author is going to say, no, 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 that's not what I wrote. This is what I wrote. You need to follow and listen to what I'm saying. If an engineer designs something and says, right, these are the specifications that you have to follow, you can't turn around and go, ah, no, that's too much work. I don't feel like doing that. I'll just do it the way I want to do it. No, you have to follow what the engineer says. That's the rules. He designed it. He sets the rules. Think about playing games. You know, when kids make up games, all right? You know, you might go to sort of playing a game with a kid and you go, that's not the way it goes. And the kid says, that's my rules. You're playing my game, you play by my rules. Some of you would be familiar with the cartoon series about Bluey. There's an episode that's been circulating recently about how to play past the parcel. And it's kind of been changed. The rules have been changed so that, you know, every time you peel off a layer, you get a present. Because, you know, nobody should be missing out. Well, in that episode of Bluey, they go, no, that is not the way the game is played. There's only one prize, it's the one that's in the middle. And you peel off the layers and you get nothing until you get to the middle. That's the rules of the game. You can't just go changing them because you don't like it or you think that it's better if everybody gets a prize. That is not how rules work. God is the creator of the universe and he has set the rules about how things operate and his rules say, unless you recognise that I'm the creator, unless you glorify me, then you are rebelling against me and the penalty for that is death. But here's the good news. God did not totally abandon his creation. He did, in fact, provide a way for people to rectify the problem. He set some rules and he says, he gave people his law and he said, if you keep this law, then you will not only live, but you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to others. If you go and look at those passages in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, you'll see there that God says, if you do the things that I command you, then you will live with peace. You will be prosperous. You will have victory whenever you have to fight battles. You will be fruitful. I will dwell with you. You will be my people above all the rest of the nations and you will be fruitful in every endeavour. You will be my special holy people. That's what God said. There are some rules. You follow those rules, you'll be okay with God. But they couldn't keep it. No one has been able to keep it. And later on when Paul reflects on this, he says the law actually 
serves to expose our sin, to show us how sinful we are. In Romans 5.20, the NIV translation says this, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. I really prefer the New Living Translation here because it makes it much clearer what Paul is saying. God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they were. That's why God gave his law, so that you and I could see that that evil that is permeating the world and permeating us, as we saw in the Bible Project video, is actually a problem for all of us. The situation is dire. Humanity has turned against God. God is angry about this and his holy and righteous nature demands a payment. And that payment is the death of his creation. Paul says this in Romans 2, 5 and 6. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. You see, wrath, God's wrath is an important part of the teaching of the Bible. And it's something that I think is missing from the Bible Project video. This is why we need a saviour, someone who can rescue us from this mess. We can't seem to do it ourselves. As the Bible Project video pointed out, to get rid of evil in the world, God would have to get rid of us, the people who he created, unless there was another way. And there was. God provided a way through the sacrifice of his son Jesus as an atonement sin. As the Bible Project video says, this atoning sacrifice covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in God's world and it provided purification for sin. But what it doesn't tell us is that this atoning sacrifice also appeased the wrath of God. Now I'm not sure why they chose to omit this very important aspect of the atonement. But I think it's got something to do with the fact that people have great concerns about God being a wrathful God, a God of vengeance. People don't like that idea. And part of that is because when you think about the history of religions around the world, the gods of the Greco-Roman world that was in place at the time this was written were all thought to be fickle and capricious gods. You always had to be doing things to satisfy them, to appease them with all kinds of offerings so that they wouldn't spit the dummy and bring disasters on the people like droughts and floods and plagues and other natural disasters. People used to think the gods are going to you know, bless you if you keep them happy and if you don't keep them happy, they're going to put problems upon you. And those problems were all thought to be payback from the gods for not satisfying their every whim. So I think that many Christians don't want to think of God as a God of wrath who needs to be appeased like other gods. But of course, 
Our God is not like any other gods who don't even really exist except in the minds of people. Our God is not expecting us to do things to appease his wrath. He has, in fact, appeased his own wrath. He rightfully is angry about the world's sin, but he goes, you people cannot fix this problem. I'm going to fix it for you. And alongside the portrayal of the universal sinfulness of humanity in Romans 1 to 3, Paul also tells us how God addressed the problem, how he satisfied his own righteous and justifiable wrath and paid the penalty that was needed for sin. God himself provided the solution. And Paul tells us this in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And I want to read this from the New Living Translation because I think it puts it so well. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. Now that phrase sacrifice for sin in some other versions is the NIV, the NRSV, is a sacrifice of atonement. That's this idea of the atonement that I've been talking about. In the King James, the ESV, in the Holman Bible, it uses the term propitiation by his blood. What does propitiation mean? Appeasing God's wrath. Okay? So God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. What a wonderful piece of scripture this is. All of humanity has sinned against God, but he provides the solution to satisfying his justice, which does not involve the destruction of all of his creation. Jesus is the answer to the problems of the world. The song that we used to sing when I was a teenager was Andre Crouch's Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. And that, my friends, is still the case today. Jesus is the answer for the problems of this world. But why didn't God just send Jesus as a fully grown human being to die on our behalf? I mean, why was it necessary to have that first Christmas when Jesus came as a baby. 
Why didn't God just short-circuit the whole process and just do the cross bit if that's what was needed for God's wrath to be appeased and for the penalty of sin to be paid? What's the point of all this Christmas story stuff? The baby in the manger, the angelic announcements, the shepherds, the wise men and their precious gifts. Well, that's all tied up with the second thing that we need to establish, that the saviour of the world needed to be a human being just like you and me. He needed to have experienced life like we do, so that he could be the sacrifice for our sin. And that meant that he had to be born like us, that he had to live like us, that he had to learn like us and to be tested and tempted like us. And so we have a need for a saviour who is like us. The clearest statements that we find in the Bible about this Uh, the the need for Jesus to experience life like us. They're actually found in the book of Hebrews, chapters 2 and 5. This is what it says in chapter 2 of Hebrews. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement, there's that word again, make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered, he was tempted, sorry, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's what we read in chapter 2 of Hebrews. Here's what we read in chapter 5. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the author of Hebrews is saying here, this is the job of a high priest, to represent people to God. And then he says about Jesus, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
These verses explain why it was necessary for Jesus to be born a human being so that he could be a high priest who understands or understood what it is like to be one of us, to be subject to the same temptations that we are, to feel the same disappointments that we do, to get hungry and thirsty as we do, to grow weary and to be exhausted like we so often are and to not always have all the answers just like us. Luke tells us in his Gospel that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. And the passages that I read from Hebrews confirm that Jesus had to learn obedience and that that was learned through suffering. But once he achieved the goal, which is what it actually means in Hebrews when it says that he was made perfect, it means that he was proven to be worthy of living human life as God intended it to be, then he was able to be the sacrifice that would appease God's wrath, pay the penalty for sin and restore the relationship that was broken through sin and evil. And because he lived life as a human being, he knows what his life is like for us. He may have come as a baby and that is what we remember at Christmas. But Christmas isn't about celebrating babies and births and gifts and time with the family. Good as those things are, it is about remembering that the saviour of the world came into the world that God created and began the process of atoning for our sins. It is about being thankful that God sent a saviour who would understand what life is like for each one of us. So that when we're desperate, when we're downhearted, when everything looks gloomy and dark, when life sucks, when we don't know what to say or to do, we have a saviour who understands and who is on our side. Indeed, Hebrews tells us that he ever lived to make intercession for us. That is, he is our advocate, our support, our defender, our saviour. Here is what we read in Hebrews 7. And again, I'm quoting the New Living Translation. There were many priests under the old system, but death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because... He is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honour in heaven. Unlike those other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. So not only do we need a saviour, friends, we need a saviour who is like us, but is better than us. One who has experienced all that we do so he knows the struggles that we have. 
but one who could also show us that it's possible to live a life that pleases God. And Jesus did it. And so can we. But Because not only has Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, he's now interceding on our behalf before the throne of God and he's also given us his Holy Spirit to help us day by day. But that's a whole other topic for another day. The last point that I want to make is the need to accept Jesus as the Saviour. It should be clear from what has already been said that the Saviour that we all need is Jesus, the one whose birth we remember at Christmas time. Here's what the Gospel accounts tell us uh, about this Jesus. Uh, I missed one, that one. Okay, so Matthew and Luke's Gospel we have these records of the fact that Jesus will be the one who will save people from their sins. And the passage that I read before in Luke's Gospel, to the shepherd, the saviour who has been born to you. And then in Luke chapter 2, we have the story of Simeon, who was a righteous and devout man who had been promised that he would not die until he had seen the salvation that God had promised. And he goes into the temple And this is what he ends up praying when he sees the baby Jesus. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And John, when Jesus comes towards him, says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who I meant, who was come, one that was coming after me, and he is the one that you should take note of. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. It's patently clear that Jesus is the saviour of the world. No one else can save us. And when Peter is speaking to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And Paul says to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Friends, there really is no other option. We must accept that the baby born that first Christmas, is the saviour of the world. I want to finish with a challenge to each one of us. It's a two-part challenge for those who are not followers of Jesus and those who are followers of Jesus. Firstly, if you are not a follower of Jesus, whether you're sitting here today in church or you're watching this online, or if you've never really understood the mess that you're in and you need for a saviour, then I urge you to consider Jesus this Christmas. Don't get caught up in the commercialised version of Christmas. The tinsel and the trees and the presents and the feasts and the family time, they're not bad things in and of themselves, but they do not represent the true meaning of Christmas. The true meaning of Christmas is found in the message or the good news that Jesus is the saviour of the world. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to tell you that he wants to be your saviour too. 
if you already are a follower of Jesus, then your challenge is this. What are you going to do to tell other people about the true meaning of Christmas? Many of us, you know, just find it easier to go with the flow, to not rock the boat, especially if we've got family members who are not Christian. I'm sure that some of you have had people, including family members, say to you, why do you have to ruin Christmas by bringing religion into it? I'm sure you've heard that. Or perhaps they might say to you, don't spoil our family Christmas time by bringing you know, by telling us we've got to go to church or by telling us that you can't be there because you're going off to church. A number of years ago, the Catholics had an advertising program on TV and it ran with the slogan, put Christ back into Xmas. Remember that one? Some of you older people would remember that. Put Christ back into Xmas. George Beverly Shea, who was the great soloist in the Billy Graham Crusades, used to sing a song with these words, Don't wish me Merry Xmas, nor Happy Holiday. Put Christ back into Christmas on this blessed holy day. And here's another song that was a hit for many singers, including uh, Tammy Wynette, the country singer, which I think has got wonderful words in it. Unto you is born this day a saviour. A baby boy was found there in a manger. The blessed truth of Christmas, let us hear. Let's put Christ back into Christmas this year. Christmas is the birthday of our King, the greatest gift of all he came to bring. He's the Prince of Peace. Let's show him that we care. Let's put Christ back into Christmas this year. On this day, three wise men saw a star. They followed it with gifts and travelled far and praised the baby Jesus lying there. So let's put Christ back into Christmas this year. Let within your heart his praises ring and celebrate the day our Saviour came. May peace on earth at Christmas time appear. Let's put Christ back into Christmas this year. Let's put Christ back into Christmas this year. I know that many of you here are already followers of Jesus and many of you watching online are also followers of Jesus. At some point in your life, you came to realise that you needed a saviour. Maybe when you were still a young child. Maybe when you were a teenager. Maybe as an adult. Or maybe as you grew old, you realised that you hadn't accounted for what happens when you die. But the truth is that there are many people around us who don't realise that they need a saviour. And we have been charged with telling them, we need a saviour. We need one like us. Jesus is that saviour. And we need to remember him this Christmas and tell others about him. The Vine Project, which we are currently embracing as a church, is all about presenting the need for a saviour, introducing people to Jesus as the saviour of the world and helping them to become disciples and disciple makers. Those of you who are at camp would know that already. But what we're going to be doing over the month of January in part is to offer some sessions for everybody in the church to come along so that you can engage with and get on board with this program in 2022. May God 
blesses as we celebrate our need for a saviour this Christmas. Thanks, Phil. I'm going to hand back to you as we sing our final song together.